Welcome to It Is Written Canada. He wasn't exactly sure what he was looking for, but he knew that he wasn't happy with his young life. Drugs, alcohol, and a life of crime left Matthew Feely emptier than ever before. Today, Matthew Feely, an ordained pastor and evangelist, shares his story of how his family struggled to help him without much success. Pastor Matthew Feely, welcome to It Is Written Canada. Thank you, I'm honored to be here with you. So, Pastor Matthew, can you tell us where it all started for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say it started at Kingston and Galloway, uh, which is a neighborhood in Scarborough, Ontario. Um, I was born and raised in that neighborhood and uh, it was challenging because it's a low-income neighborhood. It's a metro housing neighborhood. And I was the only one of the six children in my family born in that neighborhood. Um, the rest of my family grew up um, not too far from the beaches in Toronto and a more um, affluent neighborhood. And my father was very wealthy at that time. He um, he was a businessman, he, he did mining expeditions, and he also was involved in illegal gambling in, in Toronto. He had gambling houses, and um, you know, he was part of a network that was, uh, you know, I guess, facilitating illegal gambling uh, in Toronto and Mimico, where he was originally from. And, you know, his empire crashed one day, and he went to jail. He had federal charges against him, and you can read about him in the, uh, the newspapers. You can go to the Toronto Reference Library, and you can find information about his story and, and his journey, and he went to jail, and, you know, he came out, and he, he tried to change his life, but he was never able to recoup the money that he lost. He was never able to maintain that standard of living, and, um, you know, my mother and my father, they had like very beautiful wedding and my mother had fur coats and she had a Cadillac and, you know, she, she lived a, a kind of a lavish life, but it was also a very broken life um, where they had uh, good things on the outside, but they were struggling on the inside. And um, my mom came home one day and saw that their house was for sale. And my dad explains it by saying that, he would explain it, uh, he's passed now, but he would explain it by saying, you know, the box was full of money, and then there was less money, and then one day there was, there was no money in the box, and everything was gone, and they sold the house, and they, he knew somebody that got him a townhouse at uh, Kingston Road in Galloway, and he moved into this 
metro housing neighborhood. For my siblings, it was quite devastating. Uh, they were, you know, 12 and 10 and 9 and 8 and 6. And they have memories of moving into that neighborhood and just trying to figure out, like, what wait a second, like we had this big backyard, we had this beautiful house, why, why is it changed? Why is my school changed? Why has everything changed? It was, it was devastating for them. But for me, uh, that's all I knew, is life in that neighborhood. And, and uh, so it was challenging in a different way. Um, and I grew up as the youngest, as the baby. My parents were... Um, really in what you could call a toxic relationship. And because they were good, strong Catholics, they refused to get divorced. And so they stuck together, but it was really hard on the family. So our environments overall, and as far as how we lived and where we lived, was extremely challenging. So you had everything. I mean, your dad had a, an airplane. He was flying around all over the place, going down to the Caribbean, going northern Canada. He had it all, and your mother had it all. So that really affected you. How did that environment now that you were in, that you grew up in, how did that affect your life? Yeah, it was different. I, I would say I didn't have the same opportunities. Um, so that was very challenging. You know, you, you don't grow up with uh, money or even as far as vehicles and transportation. My father still worked until the end of his life. And he worked for his brother, who was my uncle and a very nice uncle. And um, he had a real estate company and he worked for him. And when he didn't work for the real estate company, he ran his laundromat downtown at Church in Wellesley. So it was, you know, these two men that were just very interesting and they would kind of help each other, support each other. But he was gone all the time. And if he wasn't doing real estate, he was at this laundromat and he was gone. And maybe home wasn't a place he wanted to be at anyways. Maybe it wasn't very happy. But, you know, there's no vehicle even just to get a ride to school. Um, so you're on the TTC, you're just walking everywhere. And, and there just wasn't money, like... There wasn't money to do things that your friends were doing, to go places that your friends were going. So Matt, what choices did you make at this time? Well, I would say um, I started to make some poor choices um, with uh, good intentions. I think I don't think I fully understood what I was doing. Um, you know, even now, I'm much older, but uh, I have to pause to really think about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and I don't think I did that at all at that age. I think um, I was reacting, and um, my home was broken, and I was hurting as a young person. Um, I was looking for um, an escape. I was looking to medicate, and I saw people around me um, self-medicating. People in my family, um, my father historically was an alcoholic. My mother, she had a, a long-term um, addiction to um, medication, different types of medication that where she would self-medicate and you know it was it's really hard to deal with 
but it was also learned behavior. It's, it's what I saw. And as much as I hated it, I kind of went down the same path. And, um, you know, my siblings, you know, they're, you know, I love them and, and I don't uh, blame them for anything. I think they were hurting in their own way and going through their own things. But they were, they were kind of self-medicating and, and escaping because they were partying. And I was young and I could see it, right? I remember one of my brother's friends was over one evening and there was a bunch of them together. And this particular guy, you know, he said, you know, um, you know, let's, let's have some cocaine. And it's the first I had ever heard something like that. And I couldn't believe it was even in my house. And, you know, another time, another brother uh, was about to get in trouble with the police and they came to our house looking for him. He handed me a bag of drugs and told me to go hide it, you know. So I was starting to see things the older I got. I could see it in my siblings and I could see it in my parents and my dad was like, you know, in a way like he was like kind of addicted to religion because he went to mass like twice a day every day, but he was never home. And you know, the, his, his family was hurting and he wasn't kind of being the leader he needed to be. Um, he wasn't, you know, reconciling, you know, the broken relationships and maybe he didn't know how. So what he knew how to do was to go to church twice a day. And so for me, um, my brother, one of my older brothers said to me, you know, no matter what happens, if anyone offers you drugs, just say no. You know, it was like a catchphrase in the 90s, right? Just say no. And I, I thought to myself, that's what I'm gonna do. You know, if anything, I'll drink because it's okay to drink. And, you know, again, that's kind of numbing the pain, right? But. I did drink um, as early as, you know, elementary school. You can kind of get your hands on whatever you want, um, especially depending where you live or who your friends are. Their family may have a liquor cabinet. And I had a friend and she had a liquor cabinet at her house. We would go, we would drink and we would just like, we would drink something clear like vodka and then we would fill it up with water, you know, and we would do stuff like that and just drink a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We would, we would drink and experiment and, and then I started smoking weed and then I was invited one day to um, a rave, uh, which is really popular in Toronto uh, at the time, uh, Toronto and the UK, uh, these rave parties at warehouses downtown, you know, the docks and the warehouse and different venues. Uh, there was a place called Comfort Zone that we would go to after the party. So you go to the rave on Saturday night, you go to Comfort Zone on Sunday morning, and then you go to your friend's house on Monday and you go on a binge. And I would be awake for sometimes three days without food and uh, just crystal meth and ecstasy, cocaine. I was about 14 or 15. And I was doing this, eventually I was addicted, but I was just, I was just trying to run away. And it's the only way I knew how. So you were the youngest sibling, and how did your older siblings relate to this? Well, you know, they could see 
for sure that um, it was, you know, a crisis situation. Um, they would find things in my pockets, like drug paraphernalia, and uh, I'd be gone for like days, and I'd come back, and you know, they could smell it on me, and even though in a way they were somewhat a little hypocritical because of their own choices, they were very concerned. So a few of them in particular would like talk to me, or tell their parent, tell my parents. Um, in those days, you know, we didn't have phones, and I used to like to purchase, um, you know, disposable cameras, and then take pictures at parties and then get them developed. And then I would keep the pictures carelessly in my room or something, and they would find these pictures when I was in a really bad state, and um, they knew it was bad. Um, they could, they could see the change in my life because I was a very pure and innocent child but there wasn't a lot they could do um, they were trying to help me but I didn't want to be helped and that's part of the struggle for someone who has addiction is you have to want to change and even though your addiction affects your family it will continue to do so until you really feel the need for something more and at that time I didn't have that desire for something different. I was comfortable with what I was doing. I, I was making a lot of money uh, stealing uh, bikes and selling them. Um, I had people that uh, would, would, sell, would purchase other stolen goods that I would steal from people's properties and garages and stuff. And, I had like a little enterprise of my own and I was doing, I guess, kind of like my dad, my own illegal business to support my habits. And so, you know, this went on for some time and my siblings would continue to talk to me. My oldest sister, she, you know, she found out some of my behavior and, and some, some of the things I had done and some trouble I got into. and. She drove down from where she lived four hours away and said, you're coming to live with me. And she tried to take charge of the situation. But at that point, you know, I was set in my ways and I said, I'm not going anywhere, you know, and I wasn't afraid of my sister anymore. I used to be kind of intimidated by everybody, but now I was kind of a changed person. So I didn't, um, I didn't accept the help right away, but I would say that it was like a seed sown you know, and even biblically, there's a principle of one man sows and another waters, but God gives the increase. And so these were like seeds sown, and then they would be watered by different people. I had a really good guidance counselor at school. She would let me just talk about all my problems and cry. And, uh, you know, there was different influential people who each had some wisdom, some patience, some love, and eventually, you know, God did bring about a change. Pastor Matthew, did your friends have the same kind of family support as you did? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I had different uh, friends. Um, I had friends that I went to school with. And not to say that they had perfect families. Uh, very few people do. But, you know, they had maybe more of a family structure, more support, more opportunity. 
Um, then the friends in my neighborhood where I grew up and some of the surrounding neighborhoods, which were also uh, low income or, you know, neighborhoods where, you know, a lot of kids were getting into trouble. They, um, they tended not to have much of a family. So for instance, one of my friends where we would frequent um, his home and we would um, party like do all kinds of drugs and chemicals and drink. He, um, he lived with his mom who was a schizophrenic and she often didn't have awareness as to what was going on in her apartment. And so we would just cram into this back bedroom in his apartment and people would be coming and going all throughout the day and all hours of the night and drug deals. And so it was sad because they didn't have the support. And um, I had support even though it was a struggling family and a broken family. You know, my father cared in his own way. Um, I struggle with some of the things that he did and, and I forgive him, but you know, it's hard to really um, process like some of the, the things my family went through. I was arrested one night with one of my friends that I grew up with and I don't think he had the same supports that I had. And I think the outcomes of our lives are much different. You know, he still struggles with alcoholism and uh, we've reconnected. And he's a very broken individual, but he's actually trying to turn things around late in life. We were both arrested. We were stripped, searched, and embarrassed and really humiliated and mistreated in that experience as young people. Uh, arrested um, in Scarborough and and uh, you know maybe if nowadays we would do something different uh, when we think about justice and how we were treated but we didn't really have a voice and we didn't really uh, know what to do and and um, we both were charged I was charged for having um, a concealed weapon he was charged with uh, drug trafficking and um, our lives turned out very different. And I think a big part of that is the supports we had. My father received the letter in the mail about my charges, but he's not the person I called that night when I was at the police station. I called my mother, and I could count on my mother to show me love even in the worst of times. But he got the letter by accident, and uh, he found out he was very upset. And he took me to court. And I went to court with another concealed weapon in my possession. And I didn't realize that there would be a um, security system and metal detector. And it was winter, and so I quickly hid the knife in a glove that I put in the plate that didn't go through the metal detector. And somehow I escaped further charges. But it just shows you like I was playing with fire, even after getting into trouble. And even after that experience, I was still struggling heading downward. So you were playing with fire, as you said. Mm -hmm. Is that what got you out of this cycle of partying and living kind of with crime and alcohol and with drugs? Is that what stopped it? Well, you know, my oldest brother got me a job at Music World, uh, which, you know, today it's like Spotify and Apple Music and iTunes and, 
YouTube, but then it was, you know, CDs and tapes and whatever you remember those days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I had a job there and I had to be sober to go to work. And one time I went to work and I was pretty high and my boss knew and he said, if you come to work like that one more time, you're going to be fired. So it, it kept me, you know, moving in a more positive direction. I was making money and I was doing it honestly. That was really good. Another major turning point was meeting my wife, who at the time um, became my girlfriend, uh, my wife, Christy. You know, she was just, she was not into the partying so much. Like she liked a lot of the same things, the music and the culture and the clothing and stuff, but she wasn't into, like we were into this very intense, you know, you just you just went out every night and every opportunity to get, you know, as high as possible, to really just be totally destroyed. And that's how we lived. And it was just like what we knew. And people from that day that I grew up with, even now, some of them are dying at a very young age because they've just partied so hard for so long. And she wasn't into that, you know, she, she was maybe experimenting a little bit as a young teenager, but, you know, she wasn't into that lifestyle. And so we spent time together, and when we were together, I wasn't doing those things. And um, it was very positive. Her mom used to study the Bible, and I would study with her, even though I was pretty sure she didn't know what she was talking about. <laughs> but she was new to her faith, and it was really good, but... I decided in my heart that I wanted to go back to partying eventually. And I, I loved going to raves and I actually became, you know, just kind of what you would call like a bedroom DJ where I was DJing some of the, the music, but just for my own pleasure and I had equipment and stuff. And I got into that and um, my favorite DJ was coming back to Toronto uh, after being there like a year or two before and I was determined to go and hear this DJ so I snuck behind Christy's back and bought a ticket to the party and I was tying my shoes at uh, the front door of my house to go out with friends um, Christy wasn't going and I was gonna go with my friends and I was gonna go to this party I was waiting to be picked up and my mom answered the phone and she said, Matthew, please, Matthew, come right now. She said, something's happened to James. And that was a major turning point. Matthew, I have to apologize. We have come to the end of our time with you, but I, I hope you will be able to come back next week and you can continue sharing your story with us. Uh, would you be able to do that? I, I feel really bad that we're we're kind of for sure cutting. Yeah, it I'd off be right happy now. to. Yeah. So you heard your mother say that that there was there, there something happened to James, mm -hmm. and so we'll continue with it next week. So. Thank you. But Pastor Matthew, before we let you go, I wonder if you could please pray for our viewers. Sure. There might be some who are feeling like they're in the depths of despair, and mm -hmm. they're in a very very dark place. For sure, let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you because you love us when we are close to you and even when we are in the far country. And God, I just thank you for 
loving me and helping me and rescuing me. But I know there's others. They're hurting because their families are broken. Their relationships are broken. Their marriages are broken. Maybe they have addiction. Maybe they have depression. Lord, there is nothing too hard for you. So as you rescued me, pray that you would rescue them. Bless us and keep us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Matthew, for sharing from your heart and honestly telling us what you were going through at that time. And we look forward to talking with you again next week. Freedom of choice is one of the most precious gifts God has entrusted to us. Unfortunately, we too often make poor choices, which may lead to destructive habits that enslave us, damage our health, and even ruin our lives. Friends, our free offer for you is the Special Steps to Christ Recovery Edition. 
This powerful book includes a 12-step recovery program, empowering you to overcome harmful habits and addictions. Above all, you will come to know Jesus Christ, the only one who can heal and restore, strengthen and encourage, as well as bring true balance and meaning to your life. You too can experience the fullness of life found in the words of Jesus when he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to watch a video of this podcast, please visit iiw.ca or you can go to our IIW Canada YouTube channel and click on the videos tab. Once again, thank you so much for listening.